0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We'll be looking this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17-42. through 42. So if you want to turn your Bibles, if you have them, if you want to follow along on the screen... Uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so let's uh, look at this passage together. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard uh, heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have, heard it's, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile... Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, This uh, really needs to be uh, preached all together, and really the whole Sermon on the Mount really needs to be preached all together in one shot. But um, that would require about a seven-hour sermon, so we don't—we're not doing that. And even this passage, uh, to do the, all these verses, uh, I'm struggling because uh, I want to do it all at once, but I'm not going to make it. I don't know how far I'm going to make it, but I promise I'll quit before lunchtime. Uh, or you can start throwing things at me. How's that? Uh, But we can see how far we get. But I wish I could do it together because it really all fits together as one unit. Um, And uh, as we are going through the Sermon on the Mount, as we said, it's uh, a sample or summary of really the core teachings of Jesus, the main content of what Jesus taught. So at the end of the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus says, um, go into the world make disciples of all the nations. Teaching them to do what? To have really good theology. Right? Is that what it says? No, it says teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Right? All my teachings. You need to be obedient to those teachings. So what, what is it that Jesus taught? What are the teachings that, that, that he commanded us to obey? Well, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is a good summary of those teachings. So it's super important, extremely important that we understand and get an idea for what Jesus is teaching here, what his commands are, what is it we are to obey. Uh, But this raises a question that Jesus uh, addresses even in the sermon, and that is, what is the relationship between Jesus' commands and the Old Testament commands? Uh, Why didn't Jesus say, go into into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything that was written in the Old Testament? right? We already know, and, and by, certainly by the time Matthew wrote his gospel, a number of years after Jesus died and rose again, um, this, was a, this was a debate. This was an ongoing thing in the church. What's the relationship between Jesus' commands and the Old Testament commands? Are we to keep both? Do we do we only do Jesus? Do we only do the Old Testament? Do we somehow mix them together? What's the relationship? And... Um, Jesus was aware, uh, even in his day before he died, uh, that this dispute was coming up. And, and so Jesus himself addresses this issue. Does Jesus support the Old Testament? Does he uphold the Old Testament commandments? Um, or does Jesus toss out the law of Moses as somehow not important or somehow defective? How do we answer that question? Is the Old Testament defective? Yes or no? How many say no? Then why aren't you following it? Right? Right? That's the problem. Right? If it's not defective, then why are we not out uh, slaughtering lambs this morning? Right? Instead of singing about Jesus, our cornerstone. Right? That's the problem. And it makes this passage and passages like it very difficult. And Jesus does not make things any easier on us because uh, he says. I did not, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not, not the smallest character of the law will pass away. Not one dot of the Old Testament law and prophets will be abolished. Right? Uh, therefore, who, whoever relaxes, I like these words, whoever relaxes, One of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Right? So Jesus says here that our our entrance into the kingdom is not dependent on this, but our status in the kingdom is how we handle uh, teaching Old Testament rules and regulations and commands. He says, if you if you don't uphold these, if you don't teach, if you relax them, you're, you're, you're a low grade in the kingdom. You're going to be bottom rung in the kingdom. But if you uphold and teach these, you will be great in the kingdom. But here's the problem. <laughs> here's the problem. Um, Jesus says all that, but the truth is, uh, Jesus, Paul, Peter, the rest of the New Testament clearly relaxes some of these laws. Right? Um, The whole book of of Hebrews, if you don't don't believe me, let's go back to the book of Hebrews. Uh, The whole book of Hebrews lays aside all the regulations dealing with temple and temple worship. That's a big chunk of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Poof, gone. right? Um, Paul makes a big deal about uh, not upholding the the Old Testament law, that it is obsolete. Um, Jesus himself not many chapters later in the book of Matthew is going to tell us all the regulations dealing with food and with ceremonial cleanliness or cleansing are no longer to be followed, <clears throat> right? So it creates a kind of conflict for us here. Jesus says, I uphold them all, except for the ones I don't. <laughs> what? what? What does that mean, right? There's some, there's some tension here in this passage which makes this passage a little difficult. Um, in fact, it's interesting, even in, in the following examples I just read, in at least three of the examples, Jesus says, don't follow the Old Testament. He says, don't do what, what it says. I, I'm changing it, right? So what exactly did Jesus mean when he says, whoever relaxes, I did not come to abolish, I came to fulfill, whoever relaxes, even the littlest dot, <coughs> right? It's, it's nobody in the kingdom is like, you know, you're at the bottom. What does he mean when he says all that? Well, that's what we want to try, try to unpack. <coughs> I'm not sure I can do this successfully. But we will pray that the Holy Spirit helps us because we need his help. Uh, the key words here uh, is the word fulfill. right? Jesus says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so we need to look at what that meant. And it, it is clear that in fulfilling the law, Jesus does change it. Right? Uh, but we want to look and, and make sure we're clear about what Jesus is saying and what it has to do with us. What, what is our relationship to the Old Testament and the law and the commandments? <coughs> what does he mean? Uh, so let's, let's um, try to unpack this a little bit. Like I said, we're not going to get it all done today, but um, we'll, we'll get as far as we can. Uh, do not abolish but fulfill. He said, I did not come to abolish or to cancel or to do away with the Old Testament. Jesus says, "I came to fulfill it." Uh, first thing that's important to note here is that um, he puts together the law and the prophets, meaning really the whole Old Testament. So what Jesus is talking about here is not just the commands of Moses, but he's really speaking of the commands of Moses as well as the whole Old Testament. And one thing we know for sure is that when he says, "I have not come to abolish or f- them, but to fulfill them," and that not not one character stroke will pass away until heaven and earth come (coughs) Uh, Jesus affirms that he holds the Old Testament all of it Genesis to Malachi every word of it every letter every stroke he upholds it as God inspired and authoritative God inspired and authoritative as truth that must be upheld and followed Um. Uh, G- Jesus does not in any way diminish or lower the authority of Old Testament Scripture. In fact, over and over, Jesus explains his own life and ministry in terms of the Old Testament, and that uh, the disciples carried on that tradition when they talked about Jesus in, in Acts and in the letters of Paul and onward. They don't talk about their experience with Jesus. They don't say, "Hey, we saw him. We walked with him." No. They go to the Old Testament and they explain Jesus' life and ministry from the Old Testament. Okay. So uh, it, it, it should challenge us, to, uh, the same way, to hold Scripture in the highest regard. The highest regard, both Old and New Testament, as God's holy word that we cannot uh, just dismiss because it's not somehow culturally relevant anymore. Or because, you know, the times have changed, and well, maybe it meant that then, but it doesn't have authority for our lives now. Uh, The truth is, God's Word has, old and new, has absolute authority, and we cannot dismiss one character stroke. This idea of jot and tittle, one iota, one character stroke, one of the smallest letters uh, from God's Word. Um, Um... but it is true that the gospel did make much of the law obsolete, right? It did change things. So, so how is that? How did that come about? How is it that Jesus Himself, uh, in just a few verses, will start dismissing chunks scripture? We've got to be very careful how we a- approach this, right? Uh, and so let me let me try to uh, unpack this in a couple of ways. First of all, it's important to understand this idea that Jesus came to fulfill the law. He says, "I did not come to abolish." The laws, but to fulfill them. Uh, what did Jesus mean when he said that that he fulfilled the law? Uh, well, it doesn't just mean that he fulfilled the Old Testament law by keeping all of the rules and all the commands of the Old Testament perfectly, which he did, by the way. Right? Jesus did perfectly keep all the commands of the Old Testament. Uh, so whatever it required of a Jewish male in his time, Jesus Fulfilled perfectly. But it doesn't just mean that. It doesn't mean just that he kept it. Um, it, means, uh, it means that he, he ultimately is its fulfillment. In other words, all of the law, all the prophets, all of the Old Testament was pointing to something uh, that wasn't an end in itself, but was looking to a final end or accomplishment or purpose. And that purpose is ultimately Jesus himself. So Jesus, in His very life and, and ministry and mission, is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament law. It's hard to explain, but let me try this illustration. Uh, how many, of you like, how many of you enjoy, or whether you like it or not, have ordered things online? Anybody? Okay, I saw. I, some of you are lying because I mean, like. Like, how can you not do this, right? I love ordering stuff online. And now we have grabs. You can order, like, just a cup of Coke online. And they just bring it to you. This is awesome stuff, right? And um, so the way this works is you go to some form on your phone or on your computer and you, you create an order. And you fill out what you want and you tell them all the stuff you want. And, um, and, and you have, in a sense, you, you've created a command. You, you have created a commandment grab, go fetch me some cow pot, right? Here it comes, right? right? You've created a command. And, and so somebody's out there scrambling to fulfill that order. And so it may take, uh, depending on what you order, it may take a few minutes or a few days, but pretty soon it comes to your house and, and, and they bring what you ordered. It's like magic. Like you can just, Like you can order all kinds of crazy stuff and it just comes to your house. Isn't that the coolest thing? It's like magic. And they show up and they ring your little doorbell and you go out and they have a box and you sign for it. And by signing it, you are declaring that that order has been what? It has been fulfilled. Right? They have met the obligations of what you commanded them. And it's done. right? And then uh, at that point, when the order has been fulfilled, the order is, is really obsolete. Right? The command that you gave is no longer really relevant because it's been fulfilled. You got what you asked for, right? Now, does, it doesn't mean that the command wasn't meaningful. It doesn't mean that you, you, you made a mistake or that you really didn't want it, right? No, you, you wanted that, that bubble tea or whatever. And, and so you made that command, you got it. But now that it's fulfilled, your order is, is a little, it's not necessary anymore. It's become somewhat obsolete, that's exactly what Jesus has done in relationship to the Old Testament law. In all of it, in all of its parts, it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, it, it called for him, but when Jesus came and, and lived out his life and work in ministry, uh, in a very real sense, he fulfilled its purpose. Uh, it was given to point to Jesus. Uh, and, and, and that the law was given to point to Jesus in a couple significant ways. First of all, the law shows us our tremendous need for him. Right? It shows us that we are spiritually bankrupt. Okay? The, the Sermon on the Mount starts with uh, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And uh, Ted did a great job explaining that really means, Blessed are those who realize they are spiritually bankrupt. Spiritually indebted. Way over our eyeballs. Well, how do we come to that realization? Well, we come to that realization through the law. When we look at the Old Testament law and realize what is required of us, uh, we all would, will acknowledge it's beyond what we can possibly do. Right? It's beyond our, uh, our ability to meet those requirements. So in that sense, the, the law points to Jesus in that it shows our great need for him. But it also uh, does more than that. It doesn't just show us our own spiritual bankruptcy, but it actually also shows us, when rightly understood the very heart of God that was ultimately revealed to us in the person and work of Christ. The law, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, uh, shows us God's heart which is ultimately revealed in the person and work of Christ. Jesus is the final and perfect revelation of who God is and what God is about. And the law is a picture of that. The law shows us something of God's heart. And so that, uh, this is, this is uh, the righteousness that the law pointed to, the righteousness that is the life of Christ. Uh, and, and Jesus talks about this righteousness in verse 20 when he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. So um, Nathan already brought this out. He exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. This is bad news for us, actually. We'll see in a moment. Uh, it, unless it exceeds the, uh, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? So the person who doesn't have the right view of the authority of scripture can lower his rank in heaven. But the person who doesn't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees can't even get into the kingdom. Right? So in this one staten, statement right here, Jesus in one fell swoop says, By the way, all the scribes and all the Pharisees are outside of my kingdom. Now, if you were listening, this would, be, this would be a time where you have a collective gasp. Okay, let's try that collectively. One, two, three. Ooh, that was pretty good. Right? Like, what? Uh, and you've got to understand that uh, there were lots of religious groups in Jesus' days, but the scribes and the Pharisees were known for their upholding of Scripture and their determination to fulfill it perfectly. So uh, Jesus talks about them tithing mint and dill, meaning you, know, you have your little flower garden at your kitchen sink with two little plants, and you, you know it's time to cook supper, and so you go and you pick a couple leaves off that plant, right? Well, they would divide the leaf into a tenth to tithe it, right That's how meticulous they were in their detail of keeping the law, right So if, if, if I say to you, you've got to be more righteous than the Pharisees. It's like, how is that possible, right? How is it possible that we could exceed their righteousness? These guys keep the law down to the jot and tittle, to the finest little stroke of the law. And you're telling me we have to do more than that? That seems impossible. Um, but the, the problem is not in their diligence to the law, right? The problem is not that we have to be even more diligent. If that were the case... Um, we just need a longer list, right? And we just need to be more more determined. But that was not the problem. The problem was not their list or their determination to keep the list. The problem was the list itself, right? The problem was that they had a list. And the reason they had a list is because they uh, had the wrong understanding of the law. They They misunderstood its purpose and its function. So... Um, they they and, and, and honestly the reason we have a problem a hard time often reconciling Old Testament law with Jesus is that we also think of the law in the same terms that the Pharisees do right? we, we may not be as diligent about keeping it because we know well Jesus somehow took care of it we don't have to uh, but we probably have the same uh, thoughts about the law as the Pharisees did And it is this. We think of the law in terms of a moral standard or set of rules. Right? And we think of things like the Ten Commandments. And, of course, the Ten Commandments is a set of rules. It is a moral code and a moral standard. Um, It is true. Uh, uh, But we have the idea that it's a, a set of rules that we could keep and that if we have kept them sufficiently, we have achieved a level of righteousness. We have met the standard. Right? And so that's kind of what a moral code is about. And that's oftentimes how we picture it. And, 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 and that's certainly how the, Jew, the Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes saw it. So in this sense, the law is like a destination. Okay, I command you, <coughs> I, I want you to go to Bangkok. Right? Now, Bangkok is a long ways away and it may take you a, a lot of time and effort to get there. Uh, maybe you'll need to buy a plane ticket or a bus ticket. Maybe you'll need to get your car and fill it full of gas. But it's a destination. And if you're diligent enough and you set your mind to it, you can you can get yourself to Bangkok. And you could say, when you got there, I have arrived, right? I have arrived. I've made it. I have completed the task, and I have done what you told me. That's how often we think about... Uh, The commands, they are like a destination. And when I have checked off the boxes, I can say, I have got there. I've arrived. I did it. I did what the law required. I have achieved it. I have arrived at the destination. I am, therefore, righteous. And that was how the Pharisees understood the law, and it's how they lived it. Right? So, everything was about the rules, and whether or not they achieved them, whether or not they successfully did what the rule required. Uh, So uh, one of the topics that Jesus talks about is uh, the the law of retribution. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? Um, This is a law that's written in the Old Testament. Um, And the idea of this is that uh, you can, well, the way it was understood by the Jews Uh, Jesus is going to show us he had a different, the law had a different meaning. But uh, the way they thought of it was, I can take revenge just as long as I don't overdo it, right? Somebody knocks my tooth out, I knock your tooth out, right? Somebody bombs my city, I bomb your city, right? Uh, By the way, we see this going on very much in the world today, right? This is very much, this kind of uh, equal retribution is is, uh, thriving well in the Middle East, Right. And it works really well. Right. It works perfectly. You know, you just keep bombing each other and it just goes on forever. And right. Works, works great. Uh, Actually, it doesn't work. Right. Uh, There's never an end because uh, no matter how equal you think your bomb is, uh, when it lands on my city, I think the bomb was worse. Like, Like I wasn't actually aiming at people. I just, you know, was aiming at buildings. You were actually trying to kill people. So now I have to equal it right, with a bigger bomb or with a more directed one, right? Uh, I knocked out your tooth, but when you tried to knock out my tooth, it hurt more. So therefore, I am just in striking back at you with even more aggression, right? But the ironic thing is that uh, for, the, for the Jews, it made, it made their um, aggression, it made hatred legal, Right, legal. But is that really righteousness? Right, Is knocking each other's tooth out, actually meeting the standard of righteousness? Well, according to the law, yes it is, because I have a right to do that. Right. But Jesus uh, shows us that the real problem is in the very way they interpret the law. Right. The law is not a destination that we can ever get to. Not because we can't fulfill it, but because the law has a whole different meaning. So for Jesus, Jesus was not a list of rules, a destination that could be achieved. Rather, uh, for Jesus, the the law represented a set of values that determines the kind of person we are and how we live. The law is a set of values that determines who we are as a person. And in that sense, it's not a destination, but it's a direction for life. So instead of the law telling you go to Bangkok, Jesus said what the law is really telling you is go east. Go east. That's the direction your life should be taking. Now, if you set off in an eastward direction, can you ever say you got there? On a round planet, no. (laughs) Maybe on a square planet, yes, but in a round planet, no, because you'll always be going east infinitely, right? You'll never get there. But what you can say is, I am headed in the right direction. Like if you're going east and, and not west, you can say, my, my life is pointed in the right direction. And see, that's how Jesus uh, saw and interpreted all of the laws of the Old Testament. they are values that sets your life in a certain course or path. It, it defines the quality of the kind of life you are living, right? So, so in this sense, uh, revenge is actually never called for because that was never the intent of the law, which, by the way, uh, as we'll see, um, this law was actually given uh, for judges when they were uh, sentencing a person who had been convicted of a crime, right? And they said in your sentencing, the sentencing has to be two things. One, it has to be uh, not excessive. Right? The, the punishment has to fit the crime. So if somebody stole the chicken, you don't find them at the cost of stealing a bull. Right? You find them at the cost of a chicken. Right? If somebody stole the bull, uh, and they're wealthy and powerful, you don't find them at the cost of a chicken. Right? You find them at the cost of a bull. And so uh, the the punishment needs to fit the crime, and the punishment is equal. Nobody gets a break because they're in higher status or they're wealthier or they're more important. The wealthy person and the poor person both pay a chicken for a chicken, a bull for a bull, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? But the principle here is not, I have a right to, to get revenge on my enemies, right? no. Jesus operated on a whole different thing. And, his, and, his, and so, so, so Jesus says, uh, forget it. I say to you, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone uh, would sue you and take your tunic, let him, ha- let him have your cloak as well. Okay, that's clearly one I'm not going to get to this week, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. But you see, Jesus is talking about a whole different direction of life. Where instead of getting revenge, we love and serve even our enemies. Right? Um, I think Jesus uh, interpreted the law correctly. Amen? Right? Uh, he, he knew what he was talking about. Whereas the Pharisees missed it. They missed it, Right? So, so when, we, when we get this perspective, when Jesus says, I uphold the law, I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Right? Uh, it doesn't mean that Jesus is saying, we need to keep the Old Testament laws exactly like the Jews did. Right? But what he's saying is, look, when you take the purpose and intention, when you take the heart and intent of what God meant in these commands, yes, absolutely, we must fulfill them to their fullest extent. The heart of them. But if, if you mean uh, we've got to keep the this, this set of rules so that we can achieve a man-made righteousness, uh, then you're misunderstanding the law. And as Jesus goes through these next six examples, as we'll see, we'll take a couple of them today and we'll have to take the, the rest next week. We will see that uh, the problem was that they, they were misinterpreting the law and misapplying it. Whereas Jesus applies it perfectly and truthfully. He understands its true meaning. Um, But the gospel definitely changes things. The gospel changes things. So much of the law in its old form is set aside, but not in its heart and purpose. Jesus upholds it and and he fulfills it. So let's take uh, just a couple of these today, and and I said we'll take the next rest next week and let's see if we can understand uh, what, how Jesus does this and I want to do it in two ways I want to look at uh, we'll look at the, the misunderstanding and how Jesus corrects it with his own interpretation and the cure the, the response that we're to have but ultimately how Jesus himself fulfills these things right, so let's start with the first one anger uh, technically murder and anger Uh, You have heard it said, and each of these begins with this phrase, you have heard that it was said. In other words, uh, this is a common part of of your religious culture and heritage. Uh, And as we look at these commands, it's very important to understand that Jesus is speaking not so much about the, the laws as they were written by Moses in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, as much as how it got... Uh, communicated and understood among pop culture in Jesus' day, right? And so, what he's dismantling a lot is their misunderstanding in their pop culture of theology, right? He says, you have heard it said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, okay? One of the Ten Commandments, right? And certainly Jesus not, does not uh, dismiss that law. He doesn't say, well, you know, new new time, new day, uh, that was good for them. But now, you know, if somebody is in your face, just kill him. <laughs> Jesus is not saying that, right? He's upholding the law. He says, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Right? There's a penalty for murder. And the penalty actually was your own life. That was in, in, even in Jesus' day. It wasn't carried out often because uh, the Jews didn't have authority to do it. But if they were to follow the law, they would have said, yes, if you take somebody's life, you deserve capital punishment. Uh, But I say to you, okay, so in every one of these six examples, Jesus responds to, you've heard it said with his own, but I say to you, which is interpreted, um, uh, you've heard it said, but you had it wrong. Okay, this is essentially what he's saying here. You had it wrong. You did not interpret the law properly. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, that is the tribunal council that judges. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and they'll remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Um, in, in this example and in the next one of, of lust, Jesus illustrates a very important principle that the righteousness that he requires is not just external, right? Uh, uh, imagine that you could be convicted for the crime of anger, Right? Imagine that there were like anger police running around who would arrest you if like you lost your, your temper, right? How many of us would be in serious trouble? But can you imagine what this would look like in court, right? Like if you kill somebody, there's like evidence, there's like a body, <laughs> like there's a dead person and, and there's, there's usually some weapon and there's probably witnesses of a crime, of an action that you did. But imagine how this would work in, in, in a court of law. Because, you know, like, there's the kind of anger, like, where you go off and you explode. There's that kind of anger. But there's the kind of anger that's more like, mm, right, you know? Like, you don't say anything. It's just boiling inside. And people around you kind of can sense, ooh, I think they're upset, right? Like, Thai people are really good at They've got, like, radar for Jai Ron, right? And they'll tell you, Jai Yen, Jai Yen, you know, cool your jets, right? It's like, I didn't say anything. I'm not angry. I'm not upset. You mean Jai Yen. I'll tell you Jai Yen. Right? <laughs> right? Right? Jai Yen. Right? Right? It's hard to prove in a court of law. Right? Because, like, you could take a picture and it's hard to prove uh, because it's internal. Right? Same with lust. It's hard to prove lust. Uh, it's inward. Uh, but it's real. Right? It's real. And and God says, look, the the righteousness is not something that we just perform on the outside that meets some external standard. It is about the heart. And there is a judge, maybe not on this earth, but there is a judge who will judge your heart, who knows the thoughts and intentions of your mind. And he knows absolutely when you are angry. Um, And and here's the thing with anger. Um, Anger. this is probably true for the Pharisees. I know it's certainly true for me. When I am angry, I am always just in my anger. <laughs> I am always just. I always have good cause for being angry. I'm angry because you did something really stupid. Right? You harmed me. You wronged me in some way. And I have a right to respond with anger. I am justified in that in that response. Um, and, and the idea is that in anger, we, it is a sense of punishing others for the wrong that they've done to us. I have a right to respond to you with, with these, with these uh, attitudes and even words that are harsh because you have wronged me. And so he talks only about anger, but he says if you call your, your, your brother, you empty head, you lughead, you you idiot, right? uh, you fool, um, I'm, I'm justified in that response because you have wronged me. Right, um, and, and, and in Jesus' day, maybe the, the scribes and Pharisees would have said, Well, yeah, you know, words don't hurt, right? I haven't hurt you just because I called you stupid. Um, it's not the same as killing somebody. Uh, but words do hurt. And we all know that, right? We've all felt the pain of people who said cruel things about us, uh, who belittled us. But we say, Yeah, but I have the right to hurt them because they wronged me. I am justified in my anger because they have wronged me. Um, and, and Jesus says that uh, to, to hold on to that anger is to come under the same judgment that murder brings. Right? He says it brings the same judgment. You will be liable uh, to the hell of fire. Right? We stand at risk of eternal judgment and uh, even if we've never murdered a single person, but we've only been angry in our hearts. And there is a judge who is capable to judge our heart, and he will. Now what's interesting is the cure. Remember, I so said, we look at the problem, and of course the Jews would have felt, hey, I, I, haven't actually, I haven't actually hurt that person, so I am not guilty. And Jesus says, no, you are guilty. You are guilty in your heart of doing a harm against that person. Right? You have not loved them and you have treated them uh, with, with with hatred, right? So what's the cure? Well what's interesting, he doesn't say he doesn't say like like I would think the cure should be, you know, go to anger management class, right? Learn how to learn how to rein in that anger, right? Learn how to breathe deeply. And let the anger go, right? I don't know, whatever kind of psychological things that we come up with, right? Uh, Notice what he says the cure is. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Okay, now Jesus is teaching this in Galilee, way up in the north, and the picture here is somebody who's gone to the temple in Jerusalem with an offering. And for the Jews, especially if you lived outside of Jerusalem, this was a big deal that maybe you did once a year, maybe not even that. And so you would take your little lamb and you would, you know, I don't know how they carried it or drug it, let it, whatever, go all the way down to Jerusalem, 70-mile hike, several-day journey, go to the temple, prepare the offering, and you're getting ready to prepare it. He says, you're, you're at the altar ready to present this offering that you've been planning this trip for all this time, and you remember your brother has something against you, leave it at the altar and go reconcile with your brother. Okay, this means 70-mile trip back to Galilee. Oh, but this is my uncle that leaves even farther, so i got to go find my uncle, way up, you know, this guy that I, uh, I offended. And notice what he says here. It's not a person that you're angry with, but he says, somebody that you have offended. Somebody who has something against you. Right? Somebody that you have given a right to be just in their anger. Right? Somebody that you have hurt. Somebody that you have done something against where you wronged them. Right? And, and you leave your, your gift at the altar and you go find them. And before you can worship God, he says, you need to make it right. You need to reconcile with that brother. Uh, get the genius of what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, look, you think you have a right to be angry. You think you are justified in your anger because somebody has wronged you. But next time you're at the temple, do an inventory and think through all the people you've wronged. And go fix it before you offer your offering. Right? you, then the thing is, if we are honest, if we are the people who are are, are the poor in spirit, those who mourn for their own sin, those who are meek, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, if we are honest, we will know that we have given plenty of reason for other people to be angry. Right? If you're not completely convinced on this one and you're married, just ask your spouse. Like, have I ever done anything to make you angry? like, in the last five minutes. <laughs> right? Um, we are guilty of, of causing hurt to others. Right? And Jesus said, here's the medicine for your own anger. You, know, you need forgiveness. Right? You need forgiveness. You need to go to that person and you need to put yourself in their mercy and you need to say, I have I was wrong, and I, I have hurt you, and and I need you to release your anger and and not be angry at me anymore. Right? And that doesn't always happen, right? Sometimes people are so holding on to their anger they don't let go. But he said it is our our duty to to to, to go to them and to try to reconcile. Well, I'm thinking that like here's the picture. If this was for real, like if if a person really did this, they went to Jerusalem, they're about to offer, God strikes them with guilt, uh, conviction of somebody that they hurt. hurt. They leave their little lamb, hike 70 miles back. They go to all that trouble to restore and to reconcile that relationship. And, And maybe feeling the sting of pain when that person is just reluctant to give them forgiveness. And they feel the pain of that anger over them. And it's like, I want to be released from that. Would you please release me from your anger? Would you please forgive me? Okay. I think Jesus wants us to keep that picture in mind when we want to be angry at somebody else. Yeah, maybe we're justified. But guess what? We are also people who desperately need grace. We desperately need forgiveness. Right? Okay? So who am I to hold anger over somebody else when I myself am in such desperate need of forgiveness? Um, Therefore, you don't have a right to be angry with others, right? Uh, Instead of angry, we should be people of grace and forgiveness. Instead of anger, what we need is reconciliation. Reconciliation. So how, how did Jesus fulfill this? Remember, uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of these laws. Jesus in his very life uh, is the completion, is the, the, the delivery, uh, the order uh, delivered in his own life. Well, of course, Jesus never did wrong. And never did Jesus go to worship. And it came to his mind, Oh, I need to ask forgiveness. <laughs> right? that, that was never true of Jesus. Never once did Jesus say, oh, you know, I said something to my mom that I know really hurt her feelings, and so I better go, you know, ask forgiveness. Uh, Jesus offended lots of people, but it was never in the wrong. It was never done outside of his genuine love for them, to see them change. So never did Jesus have to ask for forgiveness. And yet Jesus is the one who uh, God sent to be reconciliation for us. He is our reconciliation with the Father. And the truth is, God had every right to be angry with us and to pour out His wrath upon us because we have wronged Him in so many ways. God is never uh, unjustified in His anger toward us. God is very justified in his anger towards us, and he has right to respond in wrath. But instead of pouring out his wrath and anger on us, which we deserve, God turned his anger and his wrath towards Jesus as he hung on the cross. Uh, God sent his son, Jesus, to be our reconciliation, to be the peace offering between an angry God and sinners, a God who was just in his anger and had every right to destroy us in his anger, but who instead chose to pour his anger out on his own son, who was guiltless and innocent. Jesus was, in fact, murdered by our anger. Literally. uh, It was out of the anger and hatred of the Jews and the Romans that they... Uh, joyfully nailed Jesus to the cross. Uh, and on top of that God turned his anger toward us onto Jesus so that we could be reconciled with God. You see God did leave his 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 offering at the altar and he came to make reconciliation with us not because he was guilty but because what he values more than anything else is a right, reconciled relationship with his, with his children. Right? And, and see, that fulfills the law. The law was that, that we would be people who live for reconciliation, who strive to have loving relationships with each other where there is grace and there is forgiveness. Uh, you know, I, I'm in addition to being the pastor of CCF, I'm also the director of the Family Connection Foundation. And in that, we have lots of teams, and it just kills me uh, how often these teams can't get along together. Right? And how as brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, I'm not surprised that we hurt each other and that there's anger, because I, I cause that a lot of times myself. A lot of times my words cause anger and hurt. But what is frustrating for me is that people can't get past that. Right? They feel victimized and they feel justified in their anger and they cannot let it go. And they cannot let it go. And, and sometimes, you know, maybe teams, maybe they shouldn't work together. Uh, Paul and Barnabas couldn't work together. Sometimes maybe we need to go our separate ways. But we should never separate where there is not, on a relational level, Reconciliation. Where there is restored relationship as brother and sister in Christ. Okay, I only got one of them done out of six. I didn't get very far at all. I'll somebody at least get three of them done. Um, Let's close with this. Uh, Jesus um, extends to us grace. Um, The truth is that Uh, The reason our righteousness must must exceed that of the Pharisees is not because we need a greater external righteousness, but because of the deep unrighteousness of our very heart. We all know we are guilty of anger towards a brother. We have all fallen short of the law. The solution is not to try harder. The the solution is not to, uh, you know, solve all the problems the solution is we need we need grace. Right? The only righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees is what? The righteousness of Christ. Right? It is as Jesus applies his righteousness to our life that we enter into and belong in the kingdom of God. It is not by our own doing. Now, we'll see as we go through the rest of this that that doesn't mean we, we don't strive for these values and we don't adopt the law as, as a means of setting a direction for our life. Right? We should be a people who are on a course where anger is, is more and more a, a distant thing from our life because we love people like God loves them. But we start on this course not by our own effort, but by the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. Right? By His righteousness. It will never be a righteousness that is our own. We enter the kingdom only because we are clothed, as we sang this morning, uh, clothed in his righteousness alone. Uh, That is our hope. And that is his grace. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.